Who likes the Olympics? Does anybody like the Olympics besides me? I got a chance to go over to the Beijing Olympics and preach the first sermon for the first legal Church of Christ in China since the Communist Revolution. And uh, it was a, a wonderful thing to be over there. Our youth minister came the week after I was there and, and he preached and got to attend several of the Olympic events. So that was, that was nice. Now when you think about the Olympics, I, I guess we're just wonderstruck when you think about what people can accomplish when they push their minds and their bodies to the limit. And yet when it comes right down to it, most of those events are really meaningless, aren't they? I mean, if you shave a tenth of a second off of a world record, what difference does it make in the scheme of things? And yet I still like the Olympics. I get inspiration from these people looking at what is possible when you have focus and determination. What if there was a spiritual Olympics? What event would you enter into? And there are a, a, a number that would be exciting and honorable. But just think about this tonight. What would it be like to be a prayer Olympian? Now, we said earlier that a lot of the things, the, the particular events, really don't make that much difference. Would it make a difference if you were a prayer Olympian? That if you were growing in your prayer so that you prayed more and you prayed better? And what if you specialized? Because Olympic events... There's all kinds of specialties. If you're swimming, it's not just swimming. It's backstroke or butterfly or there are different distances and running races. So what if you specialized as a prayer Olympian in praying for your family? For my wife? For my kids? Wonderful things could occur. And what we're talking about this week is having the best marriage ever, the best family ever, being the best spouse ever. I don't know what would accelerate your progress more than improving in our prayer lives. So I want to talk to you tonight about praying for your family. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, we said Jesus is our model uh, he was the best husband ever. Look how he treated his church. Did Jesus pray for his church? Uh, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, it's bathed in prayer from the beginning to the end. You know, there as the Holy Spirit is descending and the Father is claiming him as his son in whom he is well pleased, what's Jesus doing? He's praying. And when his ministry comes to a conclusion and he's hanging on the cross, there are gasps of prayer. So Jesus was a man of determined prayer. And I think that we will be blessed if we are people of passionate and determined prayer 
And we need to pray for many things, but nothing more important than praying for our families. When, when we think about our families, one of the greatest threats that we face is distraction. Things that, that will distract our attention Our attention gets diverted and then our energy gets depleted because we lose our focus. It makes me think about the parable of the soils. And over and over again, we find it. I mean, it's in Luke chapter 8. It's in Mark chapter 4. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it. And it yielded no grain. So what is it that's, that's taking our interest in our family, the priority that we have placed upon our family, our attention to the purpose of marriage in our lives, practicing ways to show more love to our spouse and to our children? What is it that's choking that out? Worldly distractions. So what can we do about it? I've got a suggestion for you. What we need to do is pray attention. Not just pay attention, but let's pray attention. And if we'll do that, it's going to keep us on track. It's going to help us keep first things first. Prayer, among other things, is a divine means of collecting and directing your thoughts in a more holy and heavenly direction. So here we have an opportunity to fill our thoughts with with the Lord, but also fill your thoughts with her. And, And when you do that, I think it's going to fortify your will to take care of your family and attend their needs. I think it's going to, uh, it's, it's just going to make it possible as you fill your, your mind with thoughts of her to look for new ways to bring joy to her. It's just going to set in motion this holy chain of events because she's on your mind and in your heart. And you've asked God to help you to express this love in meaningful and practical ways. So what do we need to do? We're going to, everybody remember this, we're going to learn to pray attention. Now when we do that, I think it's going to help us in a number of areas in our life. For instance, I think it'll help you make better decisions. Because we want to make decisions with our family in mind. And sometimes when we don't pray, we'll make more selfish decisions. I've got a good friend. His name is Joe Henry. He runs the sound booth back in Peachtree City, Georgia. And he was in the Navy. He's a retired Navy man. He was on the USS Saratoga. And one day when he's at work, his wife told him, Well, listen, I have something very special I need your help with. So when you get off work, if you can come straight home, it would mean a lot to me today. 
Well, on this particular day, he got off early. Every once in a while, unexpected, you never knew when it was coming, you'd have a half day. And it so happened that this was a half day. So he gets out, he's going to his car, on his way home to help Kathy, his wife, when his buddies come up and they say, let's go play a round of golf. Well, he mauls that for a minute and you know how our minds can work to justify pretty much anything we want to do. Uh, He was very creative and he thought, well, you know, if I go play just nine holes, then I'll probably get home close to the same time and no one will be the wiser. So, yeah, let's go. So they go to play golf. What he doesn't notice is that when he gets his clubs out of the trunk, the key slipped off of his ring into the trunk and then he closed it. So when he's finished playing golf and he's trying to get back in his car, he can't get in the car. And somebody's got to come rescue him. And you know who it was. So he calls Kathy and says, honey, I need your help. Of course, the worst part was his car was not at the naval base his car was at the golf course and she drives 40 miles out of her way to help him on a day when she had asked help from him now the good thing is that joe was one of those people who learned from that experience and we need to pray He says, you know, if I'd pray about this, I would make a better decision. One that would honor my priorities. One that would keep me from undermining my integrity. And so we need to understand. uh, We have to weigh things out. What's more important? Prayer helps us to do that. What's more important? Your handicap or your home life. I mean, you've got to weigh that out. So we need to pray about decisions, pray about problems, pray about our children. I don't think there's any way to get to your wife's heart faster than for you to think about and care for your children. When you care for them, you are caring for her. It makes her feel loved. And one way to do that is praying for the children. Our youth minister a few years ago was a young man named Bo Pugh. He's now at the congregation in Columbia. And he was about to have his first child. I think it was the week before she was born. Her name is now Presley. And we asked him to speak on our summer series and and just talk about what he's praying for his daughter soon to be born. Would it be okay if I read you his prayers for Presley? Bo said he was praying that she would dream bigger than me and that I will let her dream. That she will not have to do great things based on my plans but I'm praying she can have plans of her own. 
He says, I'm praying that she'll love the church and see the love of the church in us. That she will glory in the cross and not her own accomplishments. That she'll want wisdom and understanding and not just to be right. That she'll grow through discouragement and fight through failures. That she'll have a tender heart and cry for things worth crying over. That she will not look down on others, but be quick to confess her sins and mistakes. That she'll know what marriage should be like from watching us. I'm praying that she'll marry an amazing man like her daddy who will help her get to heaven. And I pray that she will love him more than me and God more than him. I can't write prayers like that. Our prayers may not be as poignant, but I want to tell you They don't have to be eloquent. The important thing is that you fill your mind and your heart and your prayers with your best hopes and dreams for your children and that you share those with your spouse. You know, we need to pray for our spouses. I want to encourage you to do that. Now, some men say that they will swim the deepest ocean, that they will cross the widest river, that they will climb the highest mountain. I want to ask you to do something a little different. Would you just get down on your knees for her? I mean, not just once, like when you proposed. Once in a lifetime is not enough. But I want you to imagine for just a minute what would happen to your marriage if every day for the rest of your life you got down on your knees for your wife or for your husband. And you can pray, Lord, help me to be the best husband ever. Help me to become the man that she needs and the one she deserves. You can pray for her welfare and the fulfillment of her goals. You can say, Lord, please don't let me bring any pain into her life today. Lord, help me to make this a banner day in her life on the earth. So we need to be praying, praying about the kids, praying about decisions, praying about different kinds of things, praying for our spouse, praying with our spouse. When Lisa and I were married, I don't know when it happened, but occasionally, spontaneously, when they say, bow your head to pray, I'd reach over and take her hand. And, you know, as time went on, we would do it more. It wasn't mechanical, but it, but it was intentional. It was a way to draw close to Lisa and the Lord 
at the very same time. So I look forward to those prayer times in worship to squeeze her hand as we go before the throne of God. You know, Jesus' love brought him from heaven to earth, but then Jesus bowed low for his bride and would carry her back to heaven in his prayers. And we have the opportunity. Never are you closer to your loved one, to your beloved, than in your heart when you carry them before God's throne. So I want to encourage you to pray. Pray for her. Pray for him. Pray with her. Pray with him. And imagine what will happen when you begin to do this at the beginning of every single day. I want you to go with me to the Gospel of John. Jesus is our model. We want to take a look at what Jesus was praying for his bride, the church. He's praying for his closest disciples in John 17. Here, as he knows, he's about to leave this earth and and go into glory. We want to take a look at what was on his mind as he prays for his disciples and for you and me, future believers, those who would believe on him through their teaching, through the apostles' doctrine. And while we think about what Jesus prayed about in those final hours of his life, I want you to think about if this was your last day on earth, What would you be praying for your wife, for your husband, for your children? And do you think it might be a good idea if we do that before our life comes to an end or before our marriage comes to an end? Now, what I want us to do is begin here in verse 13. We're just going to look at a few of the things that Jesus prayed and ask if that wouldn't help us as well. In John chapter 17, we read in verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus prayed for their joy. Here Jesus is leaving the earth, going to heaven. The only reason he's going is so that he can bless them in increased measure. He wants them to have not only eternal life, but a more joyful life. And he's willing to give up his earthly life if that's what it takes. Christianity is a joy-producing religion. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. The gospel is a joy-producing message. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. And again, I say rejoice. Well, that means Christians are joy-producing people. And a husband ought to be in the joy-production business. And what we ought to be praying is, Lord, help me to bring more joy into my family's life. Not pain. Help me to bring more joy to my family. The kind that is deep. 
The kind that is lasting. So, I want to be a catalyst of joy for the ones that I love. And to do that, I need to be praying like Jesus because that's what Jesus prayed for. But let's look a little further. If you go down to verse 15, it says, He prayed, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He prayed for the safety of his bride. That's one of the responsibilities we have when we get married, that we are going to protect and be ready to lay down our lives. When we think about our world, don't you see more and more evidence of the work of the evil one? The one who wants your happy home to be a sad statistic. And there are all kinds of shameless celebrities and uh, worldly friends that want your spouse and your children and your grandchildren drawn in to their web of ungodliness. And there are false teachers and there are self-promoters who would deceive their hearts and help them lose that wonderful first love, not only for the Lord, but for pure, simple, New Testament Christianity. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? The evil one is hard at work. I've got some news for you. You're no match for him on your own. If Jesus enlists the Father through prayer as a part of his strategic defense system, do you think we need to do the same thing? That we need to be asking God to help? So we want to teach our families. We want to warn them. We want to encourage them. But by all means, we want to pray for them and pray for their safety and pray for their faithfulness. Back in verse 11... Jesus said, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Ask God to help you help them be faithful. To keep them in his name. God has done so much to help us be faithful. He's given us his word, which teaches us not only how to be forgiven, but how to live abundantly and have blessings pour into our laps. He's given us a church where we receive teaching and where we get support. He's given us elders. I call elders abundant life trainers who who feed the flock and who watch over the souls of people. When we mess up, he's provided us a way back and an advocate. But here's the other thing he's provided for their faithfulness. You. What are you doing? And you know, we can't account for those we love at the judgment, but we will account for what we have done to help them understand 
the seriousness of life, the seriousness of a coming judgment. And so we need to pray for God to help us so that their souls may be safe. Look down at verse 17. He has another prayer topic here. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we want to pray for their joy and we want to pray for their safety. Another thing we want to pray for is their growth. Sanctification is talking about growth. There is joy in salvation. There's a joy in sanctification. Sanctification is talking about spiritual maturity that results from the word. Father, sanctify them, grow them, mature them, set them apart with Christian thoughts and Christian lives. Do this, how? Through your word. Your word is truth. What can I do to help my children be sanctified and grow? I need to bring more of the word into their lives. How do you do that? Well, one way you can do that is by reading your Bible at home. And that it's done consistently and not sporadically. I like to say, this is a really uh, ingenious thing that I've come up with. It takes a lot of thought takes a lot of years of research, higher degrees of learning. If you will leave your Bible on the breakfast table, you're more likely to read than if it's not there, okay? And if you take this little ribbon and you mark the spot, hey, even better yet, just leave it open. Well, somebody might think the house isn't clean. Who cares what they think? Actually, I think it'll probably start up a good conversation And you can even say, well, I read the most wonderful thing today. And you can begin to share with them. That conversation can go a lot of places. But you can read with your family. You don't have to find it, your Bible. You don't have to figure out where you are. It's right there. You can have family devotionals. Sometimes as men, we're hesitant to lead family devotionals just because we lack confidence. And what I want to encourage you to do is understand this. It's it's just not that complicated. I think we make it harder than it is. I mean, all we have to do is read a verse, read a paragraph. You could read a chapter. And really, all you need is like a question just to have a discussion and to pray together. Now, if you have time and you want to get out of commentary, that's a good thing. I'm not suggesting that preparation is a bad thing. I'm just saying I think it'd be better to do something than to do nothing. Don't overcomplicate it. Keep it simple. You're orienting their hearts and minds towards God with the slightest and the smallest efforts. Another thing you can do is get them to service on time. That wouldn't hurt anything. If if they're getting to class and the teacher's already introduced the lesson and is in the middle of Bible class, it's going to take them a while to start tracking. How much better to get there on time to class and to worship? I think their sanctification is helped when when you do that. And by the way, 
Can I do a little preaching? Uh, come to service early. When you come late, I can't be specific. There may be some health circumstances and other considerations, so I understand there's exceptions. But generally speaking, when you come late, it's all about you. And when you come early, it's all about others. I want to meet others. I want to greet others. I, I want to find out where I can help. If there needs to be some, some assistance, maybe somebody didn't show up for the Lord's table. Maybe I need to pray, get my mind right. There's all kinds of things that you can do. But it helps your family when you get here early to really be engaged in that class. Now, the class is over. You're going home. What could you do to help them be sanctified in the truth? Thy word is truth. You could ask them what they learned. You ought to talk about it. Sometimes I do little handouts, and, and they'll have an outline on it for Sunday morning, and then it says, for the drive home. For the drive home, here's a few questions to talk about. Now, you, what you could do is say, listen, if you can tell me one passage that you learned from Bible class or from worship, you'll get dessert today. But if you can't tell me one Bible passage, not one from all of that worship and all of that Bible class, well, we'll just have to wait till next time. You know, not only to ask them to locate one passage, but maybe then you could say, well, explain to me, what does that mean? You could ask them how they're going to apply it. You could even challenge them and see if they can defend it. You see, if I can locate it, L, explain it, E, if I can apply it, A, and defend it, D, you know what? I was sanctified that day. I have grown. I've matured. And I didn't just sit there and think about other things until I could leave the building. Oh, there's, there's just a lot of things you could do. Most of all, what they need is for you to be a man of the word. If, if they're going to grow, you need to be the man of the word to help them grow. And they need to see in your attitude and in your speech and in your choices that the word is living in you richly. And then wonderful things will come about as a result. Let me mention one other thing here in John. John, this is in verse 24. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I want to sit up when Jesus says, I desire something. The word desire talks about a strong wanting. What is it that Jesus would have such a strong desire for? Something that continuously fills his heart. Something that you organize your life around. Something that guides your decision. Something that drives your behavior. That's what a desire does. What does he desire? That they will be with me 
in glory. I don't like to be away from home. I like to meet people. I like to go and uh, encourage people, but I don't like to be away from home. It's painful. And you know what I'm talking about. Some of you who travel with work, when you go away, as soon as you get where you're going, you're just counting the hours till you can go back home, cross that threshold, and plant a sweet kiss uh, on your wife's cheek. Or lips. Okay, so you're just waiting, just waiting. And your kids, they go off to college. Call your parents. They're waiting for calls. And they're looking forward to weekends. And then they get married and have their own kids. And you can't wait for holidays. Or reunions. But if that's how we feel about spending time here on earth, how much more do you think we ought to be praying about being together in heaven forever? It would keep us from getting distracted by worldly temptations, discouraged by worldly trials. We may go through a lot. But we're going to be in heaven together. We are going to see Jesus together. We're going to behold his glory together. You see, what you pray about, you think about, and what you think about, you live for. But if we're not praying about heaven and seeing our kids in heaven and seeing our wife in heaven, I, I don't know what else would be worth praying about. Jesus, when we leave John 17, we remember he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And one of the things that Jesus prayed was let this cup pass. You know, we're talking about marriage. There are some times when I have problems with Lisa and the situation is so naughty, I can't, not naughty, naughty, that I can't figure it out. And I think, Lord, could you just let this cup pass? Could you let this one pass? Could this one just kind of disappear? Because I can't figure it out. I don't think it's wrong to pray that. And there may be occasions when God does that very thing. But I remember that Jesus didn't finish his prayer that way. He finished his prayer saying, not my will, thy will be done. And on that occasion, it was necessary for Jesus to go through some pain for the reconciliation he wanted to take place. And it may be that there are some times when some pain is necessary for us to confront and talk about and resolve a situation. And honestly, if a man isn't where, willing to bear a cross, does he have any business getting married? Jesus says if we come after him, we need to deny ourselves and take up our cross. Father, not my will, 
your will be done. Now, as we go on, we remember how the prayer changes. And we see Jesus praying, Father, he goes to the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Can you pray that for your spouse? You know, sometimes we inadvertently hurt each other. We don't mean to. Uh, Women, guys are clods. There's just a lot of times we're just not thinking. We're just not paying attention as closely as we should. But sometimes it's on purpose. You hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. But Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't really understand what they're doing. And I think so often when we hurt each other in marriage, we don't really understand how much we're breaking their heart, how much we're hurting the relationship. And what I'm saying here is I think maybe sympathy would be more in order than anger. And prayer would be a lot more effective than payback. Don't succumb to pain in your marriage. Pray through the pain. There's a man by the name of William Bruckner who said, go where your best prayers lead you. You like that? I love that quote. Go where your best prayers lead you. When we think about Jesus, his best prayers led him first to the cross and then to glory. At the cross, he gave his best. And in glory right now, you know what he's doing? He's preparing his best. Preparing his best. For you. So the question is, where will your best prayers take you? I think they'll take you deep into the heart of your mate. They'll take you into the lives of your children. And they're going to take you to the throne of God where you're going to live and laugh together for all eternity. But I don't think you can lead them, that is your family, where your prayers don't lead you. So you need to pray. You need to pray like their lives depend on it, because maybe they do. Isn't it wonderful to be a Christian? Isn't it wonderful to have this gift of prayer? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And according to Hebrews 7, he ever lives to make intercession for us. To have him as our Lord and our Savior and our intercessor so that our prayers, we know with all certainty that they are heard and that they move heaven is a wonderful thing. Someone who hears us when we pray for the joy of our family, when we pray for the safety of their souls, when we pray for their growth and maturity, and when we're praying, Lord, we want to be as a family 
around your throne in heaven forever. Folks, this is one of the reasons you need to be a Christian. And I just, I'm going to be praying for you while the invitation is extended. I don't know what has been holding you back from making the commitment that you need to make or to renew your commitment or to renew your devotion to your family. But what a wonderful, wonderful day this will be. One you will celebrate in glory forever if you make that commitment, make that pledge, and let God forgive you and lead you on your way home to heaven. Won't you come as we stand and sing?